first week of Master Plan for Life. Welcome to those who are here in person. Welcome to those who are on camera. So we are doing something different this semester. We're having hybrid classes, so you can be in person, but we're, going, we're live streaming each one of the adult classes. And this is a, a first for us, so we'll see how it goes. If you're not able then to make it in person on a given night, then you can catch it on live stream, okay? And those of you watching on live stream, it's my first time trying to, uh, trying to do this. And I am told that you can, at the bottom of your media player, that there is an info button and there is also a chat button. But the chat button is not showing up, makes it hard to chat. So, yeah, so you can text. You want me to give your number then? Sure. All right. So I'm going to give a, a phone number to any of you that are not live. And if you have a question as we go, text it to Julie. And her number is 313-737-9358. Okay. 313-737-9358. Her husband's number is 737-8495. Her, uh, father no her father's number is 737-3705. Uh, so anybody else want me to? <laughs> so text to Julie if you, you have a question and she'll get my attention. We'll do our best to answer it. Everybody should have a set of notes. You guys have notebooks that are here you received as you came in, those of you that are watching uh, live stream, there is a download for lesson number one that hopefully you have in, in front of you. And if you do, turn to page one of your notes. And that's where it says at the top, Master Plan for Life and Introduction. Page one. So you skip the table of contents, all of that, go to page one, Master Plan for Life and Introduction. Everybody got that? All right, and we say, first of all, that Master Plan for Life is a course of study designed to acquaint believers with the foundational truths of the Word of God. And so because this is about the foundational truths that the Bible teaches, then it is one of the foundational courses for our church. We want everybody to go through it. Most of the people in our church over the years have gone through it. Then as new people come, we have them go through it. We have some people who flunked it. And so they take it again. So Jenny, is that you? Did you flunk it? Okay, all right. So Jenny's in here again. I'm kidding. Morgan, did you flunk it? And you're back in here again? All right. Yeah. So that happens every now and then. And, you know, if you guys flunk, then I won't call you out like I did, like I did those guys, all right? But that's why I have that sheet uh, that was on your seat when you came in that shows the chart for our discipleship path, our spiritual growth process. And if you'll take a look at that, and again, those of you on live stream, we have that under the resource tab uh, in Planning Center. So if you're able to get that, then you can look at this chart as we are as well. If not, just listen to what I'm saying. But you've got the chart there. You see it's got our mission statement up the top, which is to help people do three things. Learn about God, love Him and others, live for His purpose. So how do we go about doing that? And those of you that have taken our newcomers orientation, which some of you have recently, this chart is on page 17 of that, of that book, so you've seen it recently. 
But this is how we do that. Uh, the learn part is primarily these middle classes you see, and we have those highlighted in green, and they are how to get the most out of your Bible, and this one, Master Plan for Life. So every year in the fall, we start one of those classes, and I teach both of those. So next fall, we'll be doing Master Plan for Life, and then the following fall, or excuse me, how to get the most out of your Bible. The following fall, we'll be back to Master Plan for Life. So you guys would take this, and then next fall, you would take how to get the most out of your Bible. Then after you've completed those, you see down at the very bottom, we've got Community Institute electives. So we continue to have classes for you to learn and grow after you've taken these foundational classes. That's why there are two other classes going on right now. So behind that wall and this wall, there are classes going. One on eschatology, that's what the Bible teaches about the future and last things, and then the other classes on the Gospel of, of John. So after you guys do this, then you would take those in our midweek, what we call Community uh, Institute. Okay. So the reason that we try to emphasize then for everybody to go through this is we want to establish a commonality in terms of what everybody understands about Scripture and what Scripture teaches. And we've provided this course to help do that along with the other one, how to get the most out of your Bible. All right, back to page one then. In your notes, this is a course of study designed to acquaint believers with those foundational truths of the Word of God. The purpose of this nine-month study is discipleship. So the word discipleship needs to be understood. The term disciple strictly means a follower or a learner. So it's a descriptive term for believers or followers of Jesus Christ. So here are some of these terms related. Disciples are believers in Jesus Christ. But notice in the paragraph just above, it says it's a descriptive term for followers or believers. So which is it? Well, believers are followers. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts uh, on Sunday mornings, which we just started this past week, we're going to see that the term believer and disciple are used interchangeably for the same people. So a believer is a disciple. A believer is a follower of Jesus. And so you're not to have people, as I'll point out in a minute, you're not to have people who say, I'm a believer, but they're not a follower. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you're a follower of Jesus. Disciples are believers, or you could say followers of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is the process by which those believers, those followers, mature, and then disciplines are the activities in which we as maturing believers engage. Now that next paragraph says, some today speak of discipleship as a commitment one makes sometime after salvation. So they say disciples are made, not born. But more accurately, the Bible's teaching that disciples are born and then matured. When's a disciple born? A disciple's born when somebody's born again. When they come to Christ, they become a Christian, they believe in Jesus, now they're a disciple. Now, now they're a, a follower. But this has been a very popular and harmful, frankly, teaching for a long time in otherwise good and Bible-believing churches. And that's why I have that second sheet that was on your seats when you came in. I wanted to show you that, indeed, this is something that has been taught, and it's been taught by otherwise good people. And so, as I say, I think it's been, I know it's been harmful. This is a, a sheet from a book called the uh, Balancing the Christian Life. 
by a man named Charles Ryrie. Some of you may know that name, Charles Ryrie. Those of you watching on live stream, we have that under the resource tab as well, so you're able to look at it if you can avail yourself of that. And you see there that Charles Ryrie, who is the guy who did the Ryrie Study Bible, which was a very good study Bible. I was very helped by it many years ago. A lot of good study notes in it. He's written a lot of good books. I have them on my shelf. You know, so I'm not condemning him. I'm just saying this is, this is wrong, this, this particular teaching, and uh, has, has been harmful. You see what he's got there on page 187, the, the schematic. And he's saying that it's not this way. That first one there, it's not this way. So you have the cross, and that's symbolizing when you came to Jesus. So the cross on the left is when you got saved, when you became a Christian. But then notice you've got that flat line for some period of time. After you come to Jesus, you're not growing. You're just a believer. And you're just flatlined. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's, what it, that's what he's showing. And then notice the word dedication. Okay? Um, dedication. Now, he's saying it's not this way that you go the flat line. You have this time, sometime later, after you came to Jesus, you have some time where you then dedicate yourself to the Lord. It didn't happen when you got saved, says he. But rather, it happened sometime later. And, but it's not this way that then all of a sudden, you know, everything's, everything's great. Victory achieved. But then he goes on to say, here's the way it really is. And he's saying you get saved, that's the cross. You have the flatline period. But then at some point you have this dedication. You dedicate yourself to the Lord. And now it's not, you know, victory achieved, but now you have an upward tra trajectory as you grow in your Christian life. Now, what do you think is wrong with, with that? So he's saying it's the, it's the second way, it's not the first way. And I'm telling you, it's not either one of those ways. <laughs> so what, what do you think is, is, what's wrong here? Where's the problem with those charts? It's that gap between the cross and dedication. You see, biblically, there's no gap. There's no gap either way. That, that jagged line, that's a, that, that identifies what the Bible teaches about you know, the Christian life. We still have the sin nature. We still struggle with sin. So, you know, you'll take three steps forward and one step back sometimes and all of that. That's all true. But that should go back to the cross. That's when that starts. You don't have this flatline period. And yet, lots of people have been taught that. You come to Jesus and then we'll worry about you becoming a disciple of Jesus later. And here's the other even more harmful piece of that. Some people never become a disciple of Jesus. They just continue the flat line the rest of their life, but they say, I'm a believer. I've encountered lots of people over the years who've said that. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I trusted Christ as my Savior a long time ago. So I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Nothing's changed. Flat line, right? And the Bible teaches, as we will see when we go through Master Plan for Life, you come to Jesus, there's a radical change that happens. A reordering of your priorities and your allegiances and your values. You don't become perfect. It's jagged, but it starts, it starts in that. So, 
That's why we say there, some today speak of discipleship as something you do after salvation. Disciples are made, not born. Now, they're born when you're born again, but we have to be matured. So here's why we saw the need for this study, middle of page one. This course of study is designed to address three specific needs in a typical local church. We need members who know who they are as a result of their union with Jesus Christ. Many Christians never grasp the wonder and the significance of being called a child of God and without an understanding of that, namely being able to answer this question, who am I, then obedience to God is just mechanical and true inward change seldom happens. Second, local churches need a common theological foundation for our membership. Most churches are a composite of people and have widely divergent backgrounds. Effective ministry in the realm of education and evangelism requires that we have a united understanding and application of God's Word. And we need trained servants of the Lord. Many church members wander aimlessly because they feel inadequate to minister, and so the result in many churches is the few carry the burden of ministry while the many watch as spectators. So here are our goals. One, we're going to explore the new identity of the believer with the aim of creating exciting, willing followers of Christ rather than enforcing mechanical obedience. Spiritual disciplines should be a reflection of our understanding of who we are. And then, top of page two, we'll provide a basic theological literacy. We're not only going to emphasize doctrinal facts, but we're going to pursue the ability to logically fit those together in a systematic fashion. That process of biblical thinking is necessary as a foundation to live for the Lord, putting it together. Too many Christians, if you've been in church lots of years, and, I, and I've heard this from lots of people who take this class and they go, for the, for the first time, after decades, I'm putting it together. Because I've got a lot of facts just kind of hanging out there, but how do they fit together? And that's what we're, we're trying to do with this in a systematic fashion. And then it'll give you the necessary tools to become an effective servant in the church. Knowledge is never an end in itself. It's always to be channeled into productive use, and that use for Christians is always service. So here's how each of the lessons, 28 lessons that are in that notebook, 28 of them, here's how each of those 28 is structured. Page 2. You've got three sections to each of the lessons. There's a learning the truth, learning together, and then learning to live it. The learning the truth is homework. So this week, you guys should do pages 13 through 15 in preparation for next week. Pages 13 through 15. Now, they're easy. And what it does is it gives you six days. And you'll, if you, when you look at pages 13 through 15, you'll see that they are just designated day one, day two, day three, through day six. And you will start, you should start tomorrow. You can take Sunday off if you want. But six days before we get together next Wednesday, and there are just two or three questions for you to do each day. You look up some passages, you read the passages, and then we ask you some questions about the passages. Now, you write your answers out. Now, those are all related to what we'll talk about then the following week. So you'll already have some idea of what we're going to be looking at. Now, here's the good news for you. We don't grade your homework. Okay? I don't ask you what answer did you give. I don't point at you. I don't do any of that. Okay, So it's for you. It's a self-study for you. 
but it gives you something every day to be in God's Word. And that's something that many of us need. We don't have a systematic way to do that. And so you're going to have that over these next nine months doing your, doing your homework each day. That's what the learning the truth uh, piece is. Now, the answers to those, you know, you'll put your answers in there. And then we want to give you what we think are the right answers. <laughs> and you can compare your answers to our answers. So what we're going to do is put those answers every week under the resource tab of our uh, of our class, um, our class group in Planning Center. That's our church's software. So you'll get an email this week that tells you how to get to that. And every week you'll be able to click on it and you'll be able to see what the answers are and compare your answers to, to our answers, okay? So those of you, you heard that on the live stream, uh, under that resource tab where we had the chart for you, where we had lesson one for you, where we also had that Ryrie chart, Every week, we're also going to have the answers to each of the, each of the lessons, okay? Learning the truth. You'll do that during the week. Learning together is what we're doing, what we're going to do in a bit as we go through lesson one, and we'll do every week. So we get together, and we have the lesson, and each of the lessons has a number of pages to it that covers a particular doctrinal topic. The learning to live it section is like a discussion section. So based upon all of that, these are some practical questions like you're with a coworker and the coworker says X, what do you say to your coworker? That, that kind of thing. We don't do that. We're not doing that piece. So, so you can read that piece on your own and just you know, try to get an idea, but we don't have time in our hour together to, to go through that. But that's what that is. So learning the truth, learning together are the two we'll, we'll do. So I encourage you to be faithful. In attending, diligent in your preparation, zealous uh, in interaction, and may the Lord bless you in His church as we go through this. So look at page 3. This is how your book is laid out then, your notebook. The notebook has two parts to it, two major parts. And each of those parts is designed to answer one question. Part 1 is answering one question, who am I? Part two is answering a second question, why am I here? Who am I? Why am I here? We're taking 28 lessons to answer those two questions. All right? So that's why page three says at the top, part one, who am I? And then to answer that question, we've got it divided into that first part into five sections. And those sections you see each cover a doctrine. Doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of man and sin, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of salvation. By the time we get through with those, and, if you, and, and here's how many lessons are in each of those. Section 1's got five lessons. Section 2's got three. So you've got five and three. Section 3 has two lessons. Section 4 has two lessons. And then the final one, 5 has 4. So you've got 5, 3, 2, 2, 4. That adds up to 16. You've got 16 lessons answering that one question, who am I? And all of those doctrines, you see, doctrine of God, Bible, man, sin, Christ, salvation. Those are all the kinds of categories that you would have if you bought a systematic theology book. So systematic theology is a title for theology, doctrine, systematized. 
So everything the Bible teaches about a particular topic, God. Everything the Bible teaches about the Bible, about humanity and sin, about Christ, about salvation. That's what a systematic theology is. So some systematic theologies are multiple volumes, four volumes, five volumes. Uh, lots of different systematic theologies have been written by lots of different theologians. I got a bunch of them on my shelf when I was in seminary. One of the classes that we took, uh, we had three semesters of systematic theology. One of my favorite classes, by the way. It's a tremendous. Uh, so it's a great thing. That's really what we're doing here. We're doing systematic theology. And we call this, I call it, systematic theology for regular people. Okay? So this is just, you know, waist high for everybody, written and hopefully taught in a way that's understandable so that you come away with a good understanding of each of these topics. And then when we're done with that, we'll go to part two, which is in your notebook, and we'll have uh, 12 lessons related to this other question, uh, why am I here? Okay? Page four. So, everybody good? Any questions? All right. So, page four is introducing the first of these five sections now. Remember, it starts with the doctrine of God, then doctrine of the Bible, man and sin, Christ, salvation. This is the first one, and this one's five lessons long on God. And we're trying to answer, who am I? So, who am I? I am a finite creature who's responsible to the infinite Creator. The term theology means the study of God. It's used with both a general sense and a specific sense. It's applied generally to any study of biblical truth. A study specifically, though, concerned with the person of God is called theology proper, and that's the subject of these first five lessons. Now, it might seem unusual to begin an answer to the question, who am I, by talking about God. Some would begin the answer with a challenge to look inside, know yourself. Others begin with a discourse on self-esteem. But just as the logical starting place in any book is the beginning, so our study must start in the beginning. Just like we did second hour, by the way, if you were with us second hour uh, this past week, doing identity crisis. I said almost that exact, exact thing on understanding our identity. Your life is a small part of a greater story. You're part of the human race. To know yourself, you have to see the big picture. In particular, you have to understand how and why humanity came into being. This necessarily means an understanding of the one who created you. And without a clear and accurate knowledge of the character of God, the Christian faith is unintelligible. And principles of Christian living really are meaningless. And so we start this with the doctrine of God to provide the foundation for everything else that, that follows. All right, we're going to start then. We're going to do lesson one. And lesson one is one of the shorter lessons. And that's a good thing because I just spent a bunch of time going through all the introductory stuff, okay? Uh, so if you will turn to page six, we, excuse me, page seven, we'll start the very first lesson on the person we call God. Introductory lesson on God. Five lessons all together on God. You all that are here, you all watching, if you're going to miss anything, don't miss the doctrine of God. Okay, really. It does lay the foundation. And these first five lessons are really important. If you do have to miss being here, if you do have to miss watching live, then these are being recorded so you can pick it up, pick it up later. But I encourage you to do that, especially as it relates to the doctrine of God. 
me say one other thing about this study. Uh, this is something that I, I've been teaching this book for 30, literally 30 years. Uh, when I was on staff at our parent church that started this church, I and our senior pastor and two other pastors from a sister church met for a year to develop this thing for our churches. Then we met for another year to go through it and refine it. So we took two years to put it together. And that was in 91, 92. So here we are in 2021. And pretty much every year since then, I've been going through. I've been going through this. So if, I, if it looks like I uh, have it memorized, it's because I pretty much do. Because <laughs> we've gone through it a lot. But I find it helpful every time I go through, honestly. And it's been helpful over the years to those who have stuck with it. So I encourage you to do that. Top of page 7, then. If you're a believer, you know God. Think about that. You know Him, and you can come to understand Him better. Getting to know God better is a goal of, that the Christian will spend his entire life pursuing. Now, you could actually change entire life pursuing to eternity pursuing. Have you ever, have you ever considered that when you get to heaven, you're not going to know everything? We sometimes think that. You know, well, I'll know it all when I get there. So who would you be if you know it all? You would be God. So guess what? You'll never be God, therefore you'll never know it all. And you'll be continually, for eternity, mining the depths of the riches of who God, of who God is. Now we'll certainly know Him infinitely better than we do now in our sinful state, our fallen state, but we're not only going to spend our entire life pursuing that, we're going to spend eternity doing that as well. And it's a pursuit that should never be boring or impractical. To know God is the most relevant activity that can be undertaking, undertaken. It's life-changing. So, you know, our churches are really missing it, man, just to be blunt, because we think that God has kind of become irrelevant. And the Bible's become irrelevant. And so we've got to be relevant in other ways. Insult to God, frankly, blasphemous, to be perfectly blunt. Um, understanding the one who made you, <laughs> understanding the one who made the universe, having some idea of what he says about why he did that, that now causes everything to fit together. And if you don't get that, then you're just, you're just pulling straws. You're just trying to pull things together as best you can. This, God, is what holds everything together. That's what causes things to make sense. And so it's the most relevant activity that can be undertaken. This lesson, then, is designed to introduce you to three truths about God. It's just an introduction. There's always more to learn about Him. But these three basic things form the foundation of our lifelong task of building an understanding of the God of the universe. You see them there. God exists. God's a person. God is a triunity. All right, first of all, God exists. That might sound too simple. But it's the place where we need to begin. His existence is doubted or denied by many people. Note these facts, though. The existence of God is stated as fact in Scripture. So have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible just starts in the beginning, God? No argument about it. No proof. Just in the beginning, God created so Scripture and the God who 
is behind writing Scripture, as we'll see when we get to the doctrine of the Bible. Scripture then assumes that people know God. That's why it doesn't try to prove it. It assumes that people know that there's a God. And in fact, the Bible teaches that people know that there's a God. Psalm 14, 1. Psalm 14, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When the Bible uses the term fool, it's the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge, so foolishness is failure to apply knowledge. Foolishness is not ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. Foolishness is knowing but failing to appropriate and apply. So the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Why? Because he knows there is. But he's failed to apply that such that it makes a difference in his life. And so the fool denies either philosophically, either verbally, more often practically. Most people are not philosophical atheists. Most people are practical atheists. They live like God doesn't matter. So the fool has failed to appropriate what he knows. The Bible assumes they know that, and that's why it starts in the beginning. God doesn't try to prove it. Likewise, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, says that all people know God by virtue of what has been made. Everybody knows that there's a creator because of the creation. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Romans 2, 14 and 15 says, you not only have the creation itself that points to the creator that everyone has and then knows, but you also have, Romans 2, 14 and 15, a conscience that everyone has. That there are standards of right and wrong, which means there has to be a lawgiver. If there are universal laws of right and wrong, then there's a lawgiver behind that. And every person has that moral sense given by God as well. So that's Romans 1, Romans 2. Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, Acts 17 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, Greece. Now, many of you will know that Athens was the philosophical capital of the ancient world. I mean, that's the home of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. And here's Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's there. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that he meets with some Athenian philosophers. So what do you think he would do? You think he would say, hey, let me show you the five proofs for the existence of God. Let me go through them. The ontological proof, the teleological proof. You know, there's all these different, different proofs. But he doesn't do any of that. He goes and says, you all know God. You all know there's a God. But you have created your own gods in your own image. And when I looked around at your city, I saw all of the idols that you have set up. Even some of your own poets, he quotes their clueless poets. To say even your own poets have said, quote, we are his offspring. So here's Paul proclaiming the truth about God and God having shown himself in Jesus. He does that to these Athenian philosophers all based upon the truth that in fact they know God. Now when we get to the section on the doctrine of humanity and sin, we're going to see what people do with that knowledge of God. What do people do with it? Romans chapter 1 says they suppress it. They hold it down. It's not they don't have it. They don't want it. 
Sin causes us not to want God. So it's not we don't know God, we don't want God. And we'll see that under the, the doctrine of sin. So the existence of God is stated as fact in Scripture from the opening words of the Bible. The existence of God, we say secondly here, is revealed in the Bible. Revealed in the Bible. I'll talk about that in a second, but you know this idea that God uh, is a fact, that humanity was made to know that, they do know that even if they suppress that, means that the best way to argue for the existence of God is some fancy term called the transcendental argument for the existence of God. That really is the best one. I mean, there, as I said, there's these other ones, the ontological, teleological, all that. This is the best one, transcendental. What's it mean? It means that, that God is transcendent, that is, He is above everything, and that He's involved in everything. Which means that if you want to explain anything properly, you have to be able to connect it to God. And if you don't, you get messed up. Like, you know, how can somebody say that murder is always wrong? How can they say it's always wrong? It's always wrong for everybody, everywhere, to murder. Well, how, do you, how do you know that apart from God? How's there, how is there a universal law that life is sacred apart from God? And I've argued this with people who claim to be atheists. I've seen other people smarter than me argue it with people smarter than me. And the person who tries to argue that there are these universals with, apart from God can never make it work, ever. So the transcendental argument works because God is indeed transcendent and everything in His world ultimately relates to Him. The better you get at thinking that way, the better off you'll be because you'll continue to see life more clearly through a God-centered lens. It'll help you. It'll also help you to help other people because now you can show them, hey, this relates to God. Everything relates to God. God's transcendent. He's above and involved in everything. And this God who exists is revealed in the Bible, which is a great thing because God is under no obligation to prove any of this to us. Any such obligation would make him the slave of, of humanity. Yet, God's chosen to reveal himself through his word. Anyone who genuinely desires, genuinely desires to know God must gain an understanding of him from the Bible. Now, let me just stop there. I said, I, if you're thinking and you're still awake, you, you go, wait, I thought you said we know God because of the creation and because of our conscience. And now you're saying I know God through the Bible. Now, you, can know God, you can know that there is a God through creation and through your conscience. Everybody has that. Now, how am I going to know any detail about this God? How am I going to know more about what this God is like and more about what this God likes and why He made the world and what His end and purpose is? I'm going to have to have Him tell us. I'm going to have to have a revelation from Him. That's why we say then it's got to be revealed in the Bible. And the Bible does a few things. It identifies God as the Creator. The more one learns about the intricacies and order of the universe, the more faith is required to believe it's a product of chance. The conscience of a person recognizes the existence of a Creator through the creation, but the Bible reveals His true identity and character. 
You see, you could just say, you know, instead of the Big Bang, um, instead of the Big Bang and then a slow evolution of what has happened, that everything just suddenly appeared. You have no explanation for how that happened, but you could say that if you wanted, without reference to God. Or you might say there was a God at one time, but He no longer exists. I'm just making that up, but right? But that's what, that's what non-Christians do anyway. They make it up. I mean, let me give you an example. When I was in my early 20s, and I was finishing up college, and I was getting a computer degree, and I got my first computer programming job at a place in Detroit, Detroit Ball Bearing, which no longer exists, but I worked in their computer department. And my boss was a guy named Bob, and Bob was fascinated with the fact that this young 22-year-old was a Christian, and like a committed Christian. He was just fascinated with that. He couldn't believe it. And he also couldn't believe I was getting married at 22. He warned me, don't get married. You're throwing your life away. Now, why? Because he and his wife hate each other. I mean, honestly, they didn't. He just he had a, a bad marriage, like a lot of people do. He's in his 40s, and he's trying to tell me I'm going to wind up like him. And I know different, right? Because I know God, and Kim knows God. And this is going to be different than your marriage, Bob. But anyway, Bob said, so, you know, you believe God created the world in six days, yep. He says, so here's what I think. So Bob tells me what he thinks. He says, what I think is there was each planet has, had its own God. And there was a war between the gods of the planets. And the one that we call God won. And he looks at me and he goes, what do you think of that? Now, one, what I'm thinking is that's so stupid. But, <laughs> but he's my boss, so I can't tell him that. <clears throat> but he says, what do you think? And I said to him, that could have happened. And he was kind of surprised. He said, really, you think it could have happened? I go, yeah, it could have. I go, Bob, how are we going to know if it did? I mean, you can spin your yarn. At the time, there were 6 billion people in the world. Now I think there's closer to 8. There were 6 billion people in the world. I go, there's 6 billion people in the world. Every one of those 6 billion can come up with their own story. Your story is as good as anybody else's. How are we going to know what happened? The God who is, is going to have to tell us. We're going to have to have a revelation. God's going to have to reveal. God's going to have to make known. Where has he done that, Bob? Where is that? Otherwise, we're just left to you making it up or me making it up like most people do. So take a look at page, page 8. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work. These are the works of his hands. Romans 1 that I alluded to earlier, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. When people say there is no God, they have no excuse for saying so. Secondly, the Bible shows that history has been planned by God. So the Bible identifies God as a creator and secondly, shows that history has been planned by God. Have you ever heard history called His story? It's a good way to think of it. History is his story. It's the outworking of God's plan. And you see that in things like fulfilled prophecy. God has demonstrated who he is because he's the one, the prophet Isaiah says, who declares the end from the beginning. The end from the beginning. So 
the, that is, he declares what's going to happen in the end at the beginning. So from the very beginning, he's declaring the end. That's what it's saying. It's been estimated the Bible has over 300 fulfilled prophecies regarding Christ alone. So you've got where the Messiah would be born in Micah 5.2. You've got the Messiah's lineage. He's going to come through the tribe of Judah according to Genesis chapter 49 and verse, and verse 10. So the place is Bethlehem. The lineage is going to be through the tribe of Judah. The Bible's predicting this all hundreds of years before it ever happens. And those are all brought together. The place and the tribe are all brought together in the story of the eighth book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. book of Ruth only has four chapters, a tiny book, but it's, it's a pivotal book, actually, because it, it actually sets the stage for those two things to actually happen, Bethlehem and the Messiah to come through the tribe of Judah. You know how? Because if you remember, and I encourage you to go and read those just four chapters of Ruth, Boaz, the guy who ends up marrying Ruth, guess where he's from? Bethlehem. And when they get married, they have a child. And that, and that child ends up becoming the great-grandfather of David, King David. And Jesus then comes through that line. And so you have Bethlehem as the place. That's why you know, when the angel announces in Luke chapter 2 that the uh, child is going to be born is going to be bo is born to you this day in the city of who? City of David. What's the city of David? Bethlehem. Why is it Bethlehem? Because of Ruth and Boaz. <laughs> Back in the book of Ruth. God is setting this whole thing up. And every piece of it then is planned by God and is the outworking of His plan. Thirdly, the Bible records God's acts in history. It's not a book that was delivered at one time without a historical context. It records the acts of God in history which he made, by which He made Himself known to humanity. Now here's what that means. Because the Bible is, and, and Christianity is an historical religion, that means that the claims that the Bible makes can be investigated. They could potentially be falsified if they were wrong. Because the Bible's making these claims about people that existed in particular places at particular times, wars that took place, all kinds of things that, that happened that you can look into. Well, how's that different than other religions? Take Islam. The holy book of Islam is the Quran. The Quran's not written by, as the Bible is, 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period. With all of these historical events happening, you know how, how many authors the Quran has? One. Muhammad. You either take his word or you don't. He says this is the way it is. You either believe it or you don't. There's no proof. <laughs> but the Bible has got all of this, these acts in history, that it's making a claim to, and you can investigate those. And as I say, potentially they could be falsified. Unfortunately for unbelievers, nobody's ever, ever, ever able to falsify them because they all happen to, be, happen to be true. So the Bible records God's acts in history. And then see, thirdly, the existence of God is a matter of faith. It's stated as fact in Scripture, it's revealed in the Bible, and then see, it's a matter of faith. Now, when we say faith, we don't mean blind faith. Reasonable faith. Reasons 
to have faith. The word faith in the Bible, if you've been at our church for a while, you've heard me say this from the pulpit, the word faith and the word believe are the same word in the Bible. So when you see it's a matter of faith, it's a matter of belief. And it's a matter of reasonable faith. It's a matter of reasonable belief. That is, there are good reasons to believe. But in order to reason properly, now hear this, you got to believe. So you don't understand in order to believe. You believe in order to understand. You see, you believe the God who is, apart from whom nothing makes sense, transcendent. You believe that, now things start to, start to fit together. Now things start to make sense. So it was Augustine who said in the fourth century, I believe in order to understand. He's right about that. I believe. And now when I believe in God, I believe in what God has said, now this world and my place in it begins to make sense. So it's, it's faith, it's believing, but it's reasonable faith. There are reasons to believe. All right, so God exists. Secondly, God is a person, middle of page 8. Most people are vaguely religious. The existence of a supreme power makes sense to them. At the same time, they're unwilling to admit that this power is the God of the Bible. Many, under the influence of mystical religions from the Far East, have come to think of God as a force or a controlling energy, but the Bible is clear that He is indeed a person. So what does it mean that God is a person? The Bible presents a complex view of personality, whether the human personality or the divine gods. Theologians sometimes differ as to what constitutes personality, but usually it's agreed that you have these three faculties. First, the faculty of intellect. If you're a personal being, you're a thinking being. It's the function of the mind. As a thinking being, God acts with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And that's why, friends, if we are to emulate God, which we will see later is why God created us in His image, to emulate Him, to reflect Him. If we're to do that, since He's a thinking being, then we are to be thinking beings as well. We are to, in the words of some theologians, think God's thoughts after Him. We are to think like God. And so the Bible teaches that God has the faculty of intellect. Secondly, if you look on page 9, God is a volitional being. Volitional means will. So God has the function of mind and will. He doesn't act according to unthinking impulse or in submission to laws of the universe. His actions are a matter of choice of the will to fulfill His purpose. So, if we are going to emulate God in His image, then we need to think like God and we need to act, choose like God would choose. And then thirdly, God is a feeling being. That's the function of emotion. The Bible is clear that our God feels a full range of emotion, joy, sorrow, compassion, even to certain things that He, he hates. So we're to act like God. Now hear this in the way we think and in the way we will, the way we choose, but we're also to like, that is, have affection for what God likes. That is, delight in what He delights in. Hate what He, what he hates. And when we do that, that's then how we image God. Thinking like God, choosing like God, and liking what God, what God likes. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does that matter? Middle of page 9. 
The statement God is a person has implications for the Christian life. One, the personality of God gives significance to our prayer. I mean, who are we praying to? We're not praying to an impersonal machine. And sometimes, and, and in fact, one, one theologian said years ago, he said, the way we pray reflects what we think about God. And have you ever, and maybe you do this, but have you ever heard somebody pray and they just like, they just keep repeating the same thing over and again and it's almost like a rapid fire, you know, you're just hoping you'll wear God down <laughs> eventually. You know, God's not a cosmic slot machine that if you just keep putting it in, that finally you might hit the jackpot. He's a person. You speak to Him then as a, as a person. It's not formulaic. And Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 6 is where Jesus gave the model prayer. We call it sometimes the Lord's Prayer. It's better called the Disciples' Prayer because it was not Jesus' prayer. It was a prayer for the disciples, the followers for us. Jesus can't even actually pray that prayer because it says, forgive us our debts. And Jesus never had any debts to forgive. He never sinned. So this is for us. It's a model for us, right? But before he gives the model prayer, he says, here's how you're not supposed to pray. Look what it says. When you pray, do not keep on babbling. Like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So how you pray and what you think about prayer is related to how you think about God. Is He a person or is He some kind of impersonal machine? How many times do you see people saying, again, maybe you've said this, and if you have, it's okay. That's why we take this class to correct false thinking. But when somebody is going through an operation or something like that, will say, hey, man, I need all the prayers I can get. Let's get the prayer chain going, get everybody praying, right? Now, I'm in favor of that. We have a prayer list. We put it out to the church. Let's have everybody pray. But have you ever thought about why we want everybody to pray? See, a lot of people think it's because we got to bombard heaven. Sometimes people even talk that way. Let's bombard heaven. And so, you know, picture God up there. God's just sort of like a celestial mailman. He's getting these things coming in. And he's going, man, I'm noticing a lot from this particular one here. I probably should act on this one to slow this the incoming mail down. We're bombarding heaven. Nah. You know how many prayers it takes to move God one? I mean, he doesn't need any, right? He doesn't need a thousand. He doesn't need a million. Now, why then would we pray a lot? Why would we have a lot of people pray? Paul actually addresses this in 2 Corinthians. And he says, the prayers of many will result in the praise of many. The reason a lot of people pray is so that when God answers, a lot of people will praise God for that answer. It's not because a lot of people pray and made it happen. It's because when you get lots of people doing it, then we all praise God, and God loves to be praised. And He desires and deserves to be praised. So how we pray shows what we, what we think about God. Number two, the personality of God gives significance to our, our worship. You know, when we come together and we worship the Lord, we're not worshiping an inanimate idol. We're worshiping a person. And so it not only gives meaning to our prayer, but it gives meaning to 
our worship. We are before God. So when I you know, give the pastoral prayer every week, I'm asking God as a person, God, meet with us. God, accept what it is we are doing here. We're doing this for you and you alone. But I want us to think, I want myself to think, all of us to think, this is, this is God as a person for whom we're doing this. Top of page 10. The personality of God gives significance to our service. So to our prayer, to our worship, and to our, our service. Labor is empty and unfulfilling when it's compelled by an impersonal system. Duty imposed without personal involvement soon becomes drudgery. The God of the universe is a person who does place duty on us, yet He's personally involved in our labors. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say, I strenuously contend. When that word strenuously is the Greek word agonizo. We get English agony. I agonize. I strenuously contend, but with what? With all of His energy, which so powerfully works in me. So I'm not just doing this on my own for something out there that I don't know. No, I know Jesus. Jesus abides with me. I have the Spirit of God with me. He is working in me. And so in a very personal way, the service that I render is rendered to the personal God. God exists. God's a person. And then last, God is a tri-unity. Christianity has traditionally taught the doctrine of the Trinity. The word triunity is probably a better way to think of this because Trinity only stresses one of the two important things related to the triune God. Trinity stresses the three part, tri. Triunity stresses the three, tri, but then the one, unity. So you've got one God, three persons. So when you think of the Trinity or the triunity, you should think one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, this is a mystery. Notice we say there, this mystery reveals a couple of things. We call it a mystery. Let me take a couple of minutes with that. You know, when you try to get your mind around the triunity, don't try for too long. <laughs> okay? And don't try to come up with an analogy for it. People have tried to come up with analogies. Well, you know, it's kind of like water and ice and vapor, you know, or egg. It's got a yolk. It's got a, they've come up with all kinds of, and none, they all break down. None of them work. There is no analogy to this unique being in the universe, the triune God. So don't, don't try it, okay? And because of that, because you can't analogize and illustrate it, then people have thought that's contradictory, that you've got one God, three persons. That sounds like three gods. Uh, that's why we use our words carefully here. We say this is a mystery. A mystery is not the same as a contradiction. There, there's a mystery to it, meaning I can't get my mind fully around it. Neither can you. I'm going to talk in a minute about why that's okay. But I can't, you can't either. So it's a mystery in that sense. But if it were a contradiction, we'd be in a world of hurt. Because if God can contradict, then we can never know truth. And if God's very being is contradictory, then we can never know anything is true or false. You know, how did when, when the serpent came... And tempts Eve. You guys remember that? And 
she says that God had told us in the day you eat of it, you will die. And he says, you will not surely die. Now, she knows that that's a contradiction. It can't be you will die and at the same time you won't die. It can't be both. She knows that, so she's going to make a choice. And she did, as we know, right? Now, why did she know that? She knew that because the law of non-contradiction is built into God's logical universe. The laws of logic exist because a logical God exists. And if he's not a logical God, if, if he's contradictory in his person, and if he can contradict himself, we're in a world of hurt, a hopeless world of hurt. So the mystery of the triunity is not the same as a contradiction. The law of contradiction, sometimes called the law of non-contradiction, says this. Contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. Two statements cannot be true. Opposite statements cannot be true at the same time and in the same relationship. So A is B and A is not B are mutually exclusive. They both can't be true. A is B, A is not B. Mutually exclusive, contradictory. So if we were to say there's one God and there are three gods, that's contradictory. If we were to say that God is one person and God is three persons, that would be contradictory. But we don't say either one of those. We say there is one God in His being and He is three in His person. One in being, three in person. If we said He was one in three in His being, and he was one in three in his person, that would be a contradiction. It's a mystery, but not a contradiction. We say that God is one being, one essence in three persons. So let me, and you've only got three more minutes to endure. Stay with me. Let me read for you what theologian, systematic theologian, Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M, G-R-U-D-E-M, and this is what he says. He says, The distinction between the persons is not a distinction in being, but a difference in relationships. This is something far removed from our human experience, where every different human person is a different being as well. Somehow God's being is so much greater than ours, that within His one undivided being, there can be an unfolding into interpersonal relationships so that there can be three distinct persons. What then are the differences between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? There's no difference in their characteristics at all. The only difference is in the way they relate to each other and to the creation. Because God in Himself has both unity and diversity, it's not surprising that unity and diversity are reflected in human relationships that God has established. You see that in things like marriage. Male and female, He created them, but there's unity in marriage. It's a remarkable unity of two persons. They remain distinct, but they become one in body, mind, and, and spirit. That's what the Bible's teaching about God. So don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible teaches a contradiction about anything because that's an impossibility. Since God is the one who made the laws of logic, He's a logical God, all the stuff I said. So you have the unity of God. Unlike the ancient pagans who believed in many gods, that's polytheism, the Bible teaches there's one God, monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then there's the diversity of God, page 10. 
Without ceasing to be a unity, God exists as three persons. Each of these is totally and equally God. So when people join our church, and if you haven't joined our church and you plan on joining our church, and you fill out our one-page membership application, and we ask you for your, who you, your testimony when you came to Christ, but we also ask you who do you believe Jesus is and what do you believe Jesus is, has done. When, I ask you, when we ask you who you believe Jesus is, I'm giving you a hint here, okay? You want to say he's God. <laughs> now, most people say he's the Son of God, which is a good answer. The Bible uses that language. But when we meet, after you fill out your application, I always say, if you say Son of God, I say, do you understand he's fully God? Because some people think Son of God means something less than than God, that somehow He came into existence. No, He's eternally God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy, God the Holy Spirit. Totally and equally God. Now, the doctrine of the triunity illustrates the incomprehensibility of God. He exists and He may be truly known, but He can never be fully known. That's what we mean about the incomprehensibility. Ultimately, you're never going to know God fully. That's why I said at the very beginning, you're going to pursue this for the rest of eternity, knowing God. One last illustration. Remember I said that you can't get your mind around, you can't analogize, you can't come up with an illustration of the Trinity, and I'm going to tell you why that's okay. I'm going to do that now and we'll be done. All right? It's okay that you, don't, you can't explain God fully. Because anybody who opposes Christianity and anybody you're arguing with about Christianity... They all have stuff they can't explain to. Everybody does. And the one thing you should always go back to when you, you're dealing with this issue of what can I explain, what I can't explain, is go back to the very beginning. Whatever, begin, whatever beginning somebody wants to claim, how do they explain the first thing? Have you ever thought about that? How do you explain the first thing? You know, when I was in college, I took a biology class. I kept the biology book just for illustration. Because the opening pages of it say that there was a primordial, this is the language it uses, a primordial soup of gases that compressed and then they ultimately exploded. We know that as the Big Bang. This primordial soup of gases. So I ask, hey, where'd those gases come from? What are you going to say? Do you know no one can answer that? Absolutely no one can answer where the first thing came from. Everybody's got to start somewhere. Everybody does. We start with a personal God. And we've got a much better starting point than anybody else. It's not the primordial soup. It's a personal God that explains all the stuff you see, personal beings. How do you account for personal beings in God's universe without a personal God who made them? So the primordial soup can't do that. So one last illustration. Uh, years ago, when we were at our parent church, we were going around door to door handing out invitations to come to our church. But they were the Gospel of Romans. We actually had a little booklet with a cover on it that invited people to church, but we gave them the Gospel of the, the Book of Romans. And so knock on the door, it's Saturday morning, <clears throat> and this old crotchety guy answers. Now, I didn't wake him up at 7 in the morning. It's like 10, okay? But he comes and he sees me and he goes, what are you selling? 
And I go, I'm not selling this free, man. I go, it's a, it's a book, of, book of Romans, and we just want to invite you to our church. And he looks at it, and, he, and the name of our church was Huron Baptist Church. And he goes, Baptist. <laughs> he goes, I don't believe that. He goes, you guys believe in the Trinity. He goes, doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense. Trinity doesn't make any sense. I said to him, do you believe in God? He says, of course I do. I said, do you know where God came from? He says, no, I suppose you're going to tell me. <laughs> but then I said to him, no, I'm, but I'm not the one who said I only believe things that make sense. You said you don't believe the Trinity because it doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, you said I believe in God and you can't explain where he came from. You see the problem? The minute you have to believe in something or someone that started everything else, you've got something or someone that you cannot explain. Everybody has to start somewhere or with something or someone that they cannot explain. We can't explain where God came from. But we see the effects of the God who is. And he's revealed himself. We're going to see him then in the weeks to come. Okay? Pages 13 through 15 is your homework. We'll do lesson two next week. See you next week, Lord willing. Okay? See y'all. <laughs>